Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. This week, it's time for the Naked Scientist live science phone-in, which means after we take a look at some of this week's big science breakthroughs, which we do every single week, then we'll be opening the phone lines, text lines and emails to you and handing the reins of the programme to you to ask us any questions you'd like us to answer about anything science. It's 08459 25 2000 on the telephone, 07786 20 1960 on the text, or chris at nakedscientist.com if you'd like to send me an email. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and also here in the studio presenting tonight's programme is Kat Arney. Hello. And also Dave Ansell. Evening. Kat, what else have we got in store for everyone this evening? Well, coming up on the show tonight, we're going to be hearing from Chris about a brand new antibiotic. Uh, we're rapidly running out of ways to tackle bacteria, bacterial infections, so this could be the way forward. Dave's going to be bringing us very exciting news about an invisibility cloak for all you Harry Potter fans out there. And um, this is something very close to my heart. Scientists have made finally found why some people get fat and why some people don't when they eat the same thing. And the culprit is not the pies, but it's something much smaller than that. We'll be finding out more later. And if you're in an experimental mood this evening, in kitchen science we've got a fabulous thing for you to try. You'll just need a matchstick, a knife and some washing up liquid. Derek, Sheena, Yichen and Zoe are at Colchester uh, County High School this evening and they're going to be taking you through this simple experiment. More on that coming up shortly. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, it's a question that everyone wants to know is, why do I eat the same things as my friends, but I get fat and they don't? Uh, well, scientists now have found that it may be to do with bacteria living in our guts. And so far, they've only studied mice. But they find that when mice have loads and loads of a particular bacteria called Methanobrevibacter smithii living in their guts then they actually become fatter. Now, this seems a bit odd because bacteria are there in our guts to kind of uh, metabolise bits of the food that our enzymes can't. But it looks like these special bacteria help other bacteria to grow in the gut by cleaning up waste products there. And these other bacteria in the gut, which are called uh, bacterioides theta, they help to metabolise food and produce more fatty acids that then in turn make people fat. So it could be that the, the suite of different bacteria that people have living in their guts could help determine why some people get very fat and some people don't. Maybe we can manipulate this in the future. I know there's very good evidence now that uh, if you're a baby and you're born by a caesarean section, then it can have quite a profound implication for your future risk of getting things like allergies and diarrhoea. 
And the reason for that is that as a baby who's born by the normal route, let's say, your first taste of life is quite literally a mouthful of muck. And it's your mum's muck. And it's muck which has come out of her and it's muck which has made her uh, develop that particular spectrum of bacteria because of the environment in which she lives. And because you'll be eating the same food, you'll be living in the same environment, it's, it's the kind of bacterial spectrum that's going to suit you too. But if you get ripped out the way that Julius Caesar's alleged to have come out, well, it's not true, um, but, but via caesarean section, literally someone makes a hole in the abdominal wall, cuts a small slit into the uterus, the womb, tears it open, and you do quite literally tear it open, and then heaves the baby out that way. The first thing that the, bacteria, that, that the baby sees in terms of ba the bacterial world is a dose of hospital bacteria, and they're very different kinds of bugs, like Staph aureus and things like that, than it would get if it came out the normal way. And people are now doing studies, and, and there's a recent study in Europe that's shown that babies who were born via cesarean section have a much greater risk of getting allergies, and it's probably because they don't have the right spectrum of bacteria in their guts to educate their immune system. Another interesting sort of spin-off of that. Now, Sir John Pendry and colleagues at Imperial College has worked out how to make a cloaking device. Now, what you need for a cloaking device is a light coming out of your cloaking device to be exactly the same as the stuff going in. Now, light's an electromagnetic field. That means it's got an electric part and a magnetic part. Normal materials just control the electric part of the field. But to make a cloaking device, or in fact a perfect lens, you need something called a metamaterial, which can, um, can control the way the magnetic part behaves as well. Um, unfortunately, these are really difficult to make, and the only way that we can do it at the moment with lots of little wires and lots of little components in the wires, you've got to build up millions and millions of these things. And obviously it won't work with light because you'll be able to see the components. So it'll only work with radio waves, but that's still useful for stealth aircraft and things. So is that how you would hide an aeroplane or a boat? Yeah, if you could build enough of this stuff, it would probably be better for hiding people in a place because it would be quite so, heavy. So the radio wave comes in, or say a radar wave yeah. comes in, it would hit this material... The material would soak it up and work out how to regenerate it. It, it wouldn't even do that. It would just kind of w go through the material, avoid the plane in the middle, and come out again at the other side going in and exactly look the same identical to and the look scanner. identical. Yes. How how does stealth material work already? Well, the normal ones at the moment they tend to just absorb the radar because the way a radar works is by looking at reflection, radio reflections off something. And so if you can absorb it, you don't see the reflection. But if you have a clever radar which can see the gap, you'll still be able to see the stealth aircraft. And is this like the invisible car in the James Bond film, where it sort of took light in and then projected an image back against it? Yes, but probably rather more difficult but to how, do. Dave, how do you get the light to go through the material and then emerge on the other side in exactly the same confirmation as it came in, fooling the machine into thinking that whatever's there, being hidden or masked or cloaked, is not really there? Um, well, you know the way that light can get bent by glass or water? The idea is you build a material that will bend light around the object through this metamaterial from any direction to come out the same as it went in. Absolutely ingenious. Now, we were talking about bugs earlier, and uh, the fight against bacterial infections in hospital is becoming more and more of an acute problem as time goes on. And obviously everyone's heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's a major problem. At the moment, our sort of arsenal of bacterial-fighting drugs, antibiotics and antimicrobials we have to tackle this particular bug, is down to one or two out of uh, all of those agents that the doctors used to be able to tackle it with. But then there's good news come up on the horizon in the last couple of weeks because a couple of researchers from Merck Research Labs at New Jersey uh, over in the States called Mike Swasson and Jun Wang have found a new kind of uh, antibiotic and it's actually made already. It's a natural compound. It's made by a, a soil-dwelling bacterium called Streptomyces platensis. 
And so this particular soil-dwelling bacterium makes this agent, and it does so to fight off other bacteria in the soil around it. And it works in a totally different way to all of the other mainstream antibiotics on the market at the moment, which is why people are very excited about it. What it does is inhibit uh, a pathway which the bacteria use to make things called fatty acids. In other words, the oily substances that find their way onto the cell wall on the outside of the bacterium. And by blocking that pathway, it stops the bacteria making these essential fatty acids that they need to make their cell wall and other metabolic components, and they die. And they've done some initial tests on mice, and they've shown that this drug is very well tolerated. In other words, the mice don't get made sick by being injected with it, but it's very good at fighting off so-called gram-positive bacteria like MRSA and also streptococci, the things that cause pneumonia, sore throats, ear infections, and even meningitis. The slight downside at the moment is that it's not terribly good against so-called gram-negative bacteria, like E. coli, because they seem to be able to pump the drug out of the cell before it's had a chance to do anything. But they're looking into maybe tweaking this a little bit to see if they can make the bugs that are currently not sensitive to it more sensitive to it. But certainly exciting news, and they're looking to get that into clinical trials as soon as possible. Uh, Probably about time, too. There's more and more bacteria and infections everywhere. But moving from bacteria to black holes, now some scientists, again in, in New Jersey, have been studying a mathematical model they've developed to look at... The, uh, the dimensions of the universe. And they've come up with a theory that uh, says that the universe actually has five dimensions. This is in contrast to Einstein's theory of general relativity, which says that the universe has four dimensions, so that's X, Y, Z and time. Whereas they're working on a, a mathematical framework that has five dimensions, so X, Y, Z and time, where N is the other dimension. And using this model, they say that the universe is basically like a a strand of filmy seaweed floating in the ocean of the rest of the dimensions of the universe. And one of the predictions that their model makes about the structure of the universe is that there should be loads and loads of black holes around the place left over from the very early universe. Now, Einstein's theory doesn't say this. It says that all these very early black holes should have evaporated by now. But this new theory says there ought to be loads of black holes and black holes within our solar system. So this is quite a brave thing to um, to postulate. Dave's looking incredulous. Dave, <laughs> I'm a biologist talking about black holes. I don't know. But anyway, they think that they're going to look at some of the data that's coming through from satellites that's looking at radiation from gamma ray bursts coming into our solar system. Because if there are black holes out there, black holes have a really strong gravitational pull and you should see them so-called lensing these rays. So hopefully in the next few years we'll know a bit more about the structure of the universe by seeing whether there is this gravitational lensing going on and maybe a bit closer to working out what on earth there really is out there. Okay, now a load of politicians in America, Russia and some other countries have agreed to, they've handed over 10 billion euros apparently to build something called ITER. This is the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Now this isn't a normal reactor. A normal reactor works by breaking up um, little nucleuses of atoms into smaller ones. Um, that works for if you've got to start off with a really big atom, anything bigger than iron, you release energy by splitting it up. Now, if you start off with really small atoms, you can make energy by gluing them together. This is called nuclear fusion. Isn't this how the sun works? This is indeed how the sun works. Unfortunately, it's very, very, very difficult, which, when you think about it, is a very good thing, because <laughs> if, the, if it was very easy to cause nuclear fusion to happen, the sun would just explode. So, luckily, it's very difficult, so the sun's burning evenly over about five billion so years. So, is this achievable on Earth? It is achievable. They have been doing it um, already in something called the Joint European Taurus near Oxford. I worked there for a summer um, in my uh, younger days. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But but what's the time scale on this? When when's this actually going to be ready to, to start doing some experiments? The, um, it's probably going to take them at least five or six years to build it, and they're not going to be able to get to the point of building an actual reactor for another 20 or 30 years, so it's a very long-term thing. But eventually you should be able to have a source of power with very little nuclear waste, and almost, and you can just get the fuel from seawater. Yeah, in, in seawater, that's tritium, isn't it? Um, there's deuterium in seawater, and you can make tritium from lithium. In other words, it's an isotope of hydrogen. Hydrogen, yeah. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. For those of you who are into experimentation, now is your chance to prove your scientific skills because it's time to join Derek, Sheena, Yi Chen and Zoe who are at Colchester County High School for this week's edition of Kitchen Science. Derek. Hello, and this evening uh, we have come to Colchester County High School. So welcome to you. And uh, with me is Sheena Elliott who set up the experiment that we're going to be doing today. And this is another easy experiment that you can do at home. So please listen out for all the details. But just quickly, Sheena, what are we going to be doing today? Um, we're going to be making matchstick boats, and that's basically it. OK, yeah, sounds very simple and very cool as well, so that's great. And also, we've got two volunteers who very kindly come in to help us do the experiment itself. So could you please give me your names and what year you're in, please? I'm Zoe Taylor, and I'm in the Upper Sixth. I'm Yi Chen Gao, and I'm from the Upper Sixth as well. OK, thank you very much for coming along. Do you guys do science as well? Are you into science? Zoe, what about you? Yep, I do physics and chemistry. OK, and yourself, Yi Chen? I just do physics. Okay, and is this something you're going to carry on doing? You're enthusiastic about your science? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, this is great. We've been given some wonderful volunteers here today. Okay, so to begin with then, today I'll just run through the things you need to do this at home because it's very easy to do, and if you can do it at home and tell us the right result by phoning in, you can win a prize. So here we go then. You need some kind of tray or basin, or even your kitchen sink is fine, and you need to put some water in that. Um, you also need some matchsticks, and you need some washing-up liquid, and finally, you need a knife to uh, cut the matchstick a little. And uh, we do, of course, advise a bit of caution there. Next, then, Sheena is going to tell us what to do with all these things. So, Sheena, could you explain and perhaps direct Zoe and Yi Chen as to how to set up the experiment here? OK, so firstly, what you want to do is take your matchstick and you just need to cut it along one end so it looks like a sort of a Y shape. So your one end, you're just sort of splitting down the middle so you can open up the ends into a sort of letter Y. Okay, then. And um, is it kind of a bit fiddly work? Is, is it rather difficult to do that? Um, all I would say is keep your fingers sort of well up the other end of the matchstick when you hold it, so, so you're not anywhere near the knife when you're doing that. Okay, and what next? Um, then we're going to fill up our basin or our tray with, with water. Um, sort of any depth is fine, just a couple of centimetres or something. Okay, so Zoe and Chen, could you do that for us, please? We're, we're here in, in the Colchester County High School lab, uh, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. And just as long as it covers the bottom, that's fine, is it, Sheena? Yeah, that should work fine. OK, yeah, we've done it there. OK, thanks, guys. Right, and then? Then all we need to do is place our matchstick into the, into the bowl so it's sort of floating horizontally. So this is going to be kind of floating it flat and uh, it'll look like a Y shape from above, essentially. So, yeah, Sheena's just kind of dropped it onto the water there and it's floating around very happily. And then the next thing you want to do is you just need to put a little drop of your, of your washing up liquid behind the matchstick. So what you're going to be doing is placing the side of the matchstick that the Y is opening up, so it's the top of the Y as, as you like. And you don't want to be actually touching the matchstick with the washing up detergent, you're just putting it in the water next to it. Is it just a drop as well? Just, yeah, just a drop is fine. Okay, so you're just dropping a drop of washing up liquid onto the water, which is just behind the matchstick, and that, that means on the side of the matchstick, the end of the matchstick, where that Y shape has been splayed out. Okay, and we're not going to do this now, of course. We're going to do this later on in the show when we reveal to you what the result is, but Zoe and Yi Chen are here very eager to know what's going to happen, and I'm going to ask them what they think is going to happen, actually. Zoe, firstly, what do you think might happen when we drop that washing up liquid behind the matchstick? Um, maybe the matchstick will move. 
Okay, any idea how or what way? Um, I don't really know. Okay, and, and yourself, you turn, any idea? Yeah, I think it will move in some sort of direction. All right, well, we shall see. And, of course, you at home as well, you're very much encouraged and welcome to do this experiment. Hopefully you've got all those things at your home. So, if you do it and you uh, can tell us the result, then you can win a prize. And uh, the number for you to call is 08459 And you can also email, if you wish, that's chris at thenakedscientist.com. And remember, there are prizes to be won here from The Naked Scientist if you can do that at home. So, until then, we will be going back to the studio and coming back to Colchester County High School a bit later on in the show to find out what happens and an explanation from Sheena as well. So, until then, it is back to the studio. Thanks, Derek. We'll be joining them again for an update on what they're up to in about uh, half an hour's time. But in the meantime, grab your matchstick, grab a knife, grab some detergent, tell us what happens. We've got some fantastic prizes. We have a copy of Jonathan Balcom's book, which is all about animals and whether they feel pain and pleasure. And that's a great book, and I'm going to be giving you a bit more information on that later because he's coming to Cambridge this week and he's going to be giving a talk alongside uh, Professor Felicia Huppert from Cambridge University. Uh, and that's all about the f- nature's feel-good factors. So that's one of our prizes. And another one is a fabulous book called Sex, Drugs and DNA. Uh, and that's written by uh, Dr Michael Stebbins, who was on this programme fairly uh, recently. Now, I've got an email here from Mary Hill. She's in Suffolk. And she says, uh, just a quick note to say how much I'm enjoying the latest series. I hope that there'll be many, many more. So thank you very much for that, Mary. And I've uh, got a quick question here for you, Dave, from Dylan Foreman, who says... Um, Love the show. I've got a couple of questions. Um, if sound and heat are both vibration, why isn't sound hot and heat loud? They are essentially the same sort of thing. Um, basically, heat is happening on a very, very small scale. So the sort of, if you imagine this, the, the heat waves, are the way, everything vibrating, the wavelengths of the vibrations are very, very small, about the same size as a normal atom. Whereas sound, the, vi- the wavelengths are a few centimetres. So basically, in a sound, all the atoms are moving in the same direction close to each other. Because you can get, get ultrasound, can't you? There's very, very high-frequency sound. Does that actually get hot? Is it hot? I mean, eventually the energy from sound will break up and start moving off in random directions and it will convert into what you'd feel as heat. So if you go to a really loud nightclub, does that contribute to the heating effect in your body as you feel yourself shaking across <laughs> the dance floor? Um, really lo- loud nightclubs, they do put several kilowatts of energy into the sound, <laughs> yeah. but there I, are quite a lot of I, you, so that's probably not very significant. Because everyone's just such hot stuff, I reckon. Peter is in Essex. Hello, Peter. Oh, hello. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to talk about? Uh, well, I just wondered, uh, if someone has an amputation, uh, do they get high blood pressure because there's less uh, body space for the blood to move around, you know, do they lose lose some blood, you know, because of that, like a leg or an arm amputated at all, please. What we usually find is that they have lower blood pressure, paradoxically. Um, If you, say, lose a leg, then there's less blood that needs to be piped out of the heart and into the main blood vessels in order to run around the body, because obviously you've got a big chunk of your body missing and it doesn't need any blood. So the heart's doing less work. And so the overall blood pressure around the body tends to drop a little bit. If you've got people who've lost both of their legs, which can happen for obviously a number of reasons, you can have problems with blood vessels, you can have, um, say, an accident or something, in those people they often do have lower blood pressure. And uh, the reason is the heart's having to pump less blood out to perfuse less tissue. So the average pressure in the blood vessels is lower. Oh, right. OK, thank you. Did that clear that one up? Yes, thank you. OK. Now, do, uh, do you want to have a go at the quiz? Yeah, sure. Here we go. The force needed to crush a head louse is about five hundred thousand times its own weight. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, I'd say that was fact. You are right. Um, head lice have a really hard exoskeleton, so you need to really squeeze them to get them dead. 
Women in the 18th century, Peter, used to wear flea traps. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Um, I'd say that was uh, fact. Apparently, yes. They disguise them as items of jewellery and they'd have, like, a neck pendant consisting of a perforated silver tube and a sticky rod and any fleas which climbed in there would get stuck to the sticky rod so they couldn't bite you. Really uh, changes the meaning of the word flea bag. Um, the world record for the longest kiss was 29 hours. Fact or fiction? Um, I'd say that was true as well. You're obviously a bit of an amorous man, Peter. <laughs> Fleas and kissing, yes. Uh, the world's longest kiss was 29 hours. Uh, but not all humans do kiss each other. Some tribes, such as Eskimos, just rub noses and animals don't really kiss either. Well oh. done, Peter. Three out of three. Thank you for joining oh, us. Right. Okay, Great you. having you on the programme. Great, thank you. Uh, Pat's in Lowestoft wants to know if everything on the planet got wiped out by a bomb, could life start again like it did originally? What do you think about that? I think you'd have to try really hard to wipe out life. There's there's life thriving in the most inhospitable environments on our planet. Um, for example, right down in the deep ocean trenches, in thermal vents, in volcanoes. I think it would be pretty impossible to actually wipe out life. Yeah, over the last few years, people have found bacteria living like kilometres down just in solid rock. So you'd have yeah. to vaporise like 10 kilometres of rock. You might, it might set life back a bit. We'd probably get the, back to being bacteria. The best evidence must be that a huge meteorite, uh, kilometres across, slammed into the Earth about 60 million years ago. It dispensed with the dinosaurs, but not crocodiles that were around at the same time as the dinosaurs. And it meant that lots and lots of animals were set back a long way but it meant that animals like us, mammals, which are warm-blooded, began to flourish. It gave us our big break in life. So the chances are if you did detonate a massive bomb, perhaps some other kind of funny form of life would then take over. Well, the, uh, the Rolling Stones seem fairly impervious to dying, so perhaps a whole <laughs> new life form based on Keith even, Richards. Even if they fall out of a <laughs> coconut tree or whatever exactly. it is. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, and tonight we want you to be on the show. It's a phone-in tonight. We'll be taking any questions about science, technology, medicine, extinction, the atom bomb, whatever. 08459 252000. Get calling in now. But now we're going to hop across the ocean and hear from this week's science update. We've got Bob Hershon and Chelsea Ward primed and ready to tell us about a digital fish library and how we can turn back the clock in cell growth by reversing cell division. This week for the Naked Scientists, we'll be talking about scientists who have hit the rewind button on cell division. But first, it's not uncommon these days to hear of libraries going digital. That could mean scanning millions of pages. But what do you do if, instead of books, your library consists of animals? Right. In museums and institutions around the world, vast collections of preserved animal specimens are just gathering dust. But not for much longer at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. It's home to one of the world's largest fish libraries, and a team there is embarking on a new project to scan the fish and put them online. They're using MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, which is commonly used by doctors to look inside the body without ever making a cut. Radiologist Larry Frank of the University of California, San Diego, explains scanning fish with MRI will let scientists do the same thing. Here is an image of a shark brain, and you can see that we've uh, been able to uh, separate all the different components, the olfactory lobes, the eyes, the optic nerves. And here is the same object from a dissected specimen. So you can see they're um, essentially the same. 
and this was done completely non-invasively. This is especially helpful for the rare specimens that lots of people want to study but are difficult to replace. It's also good for seeing things in situ, like the small fish that curator Phil Hastings points out inside the belly of one of the first fish they scanned. So we're actually getting uh, a multiple image here of two different fish, one that's been eaten by the other one. They hope the Digital Fish Library will offer opportunities to make new discoveries to everyone from university researchers to secondary school students. You can check out their progress on www.digitalfishlibrary.org. Also in the news recently, for the first time, scientists have performed a feat once thought as impossible as unringing a bell. A team led by molecular biologist Gary Gorbsky of the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation reversed the process of cell division. And specifically the end stages, when they're actually divided in half, we've been, we've been able to reverse that process and go from the stage at which you have two cells back to the stage at which you have a single cell. He says they turned the clock back by tinkering with proteins that regulate cell division, but this worked only when the divided cells hadn't completely finished separating. The implications aren't clear yet, but the technique could be useful to cancer researchers who are always looking for ways to keep rogue cells under control. Next week, we'll talk about some paranoid birds who go to great lengths to hide their belongings. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, Bob. And if you want to hear more from Bob and Chelsea, then go and check out their website at www.scienceupdate.com. And you can also check out our website at www.nakedscientist.com and leave us some feedback. And we've already had an email here from Steve, Steve Humber in the glamorous location of Poole in Dorset. Um, and he says, hi, Dr. Chris and the team. He's really happy that he's found our podcasts that are available on iTunes as well as on our website. And he's left a good review for us. So that's absolutely great. He says, big well done for producing such a wicked show. So thanks, Steve, for listening. Got uh, someone here who wants to, you to do an experiment for us on air, Dave, since you're normally our <laughs> kitchen science guru. And you've joined us in the studio uh, at the moment. And uh, just after that, then we're going to join Nelson, who's in Norfolk. So please hang in there, Nelson. Uh, this is Jeff Taylor. And he says, um, I just joined your podcast. I enjoy your show. Um, I have a quick question. Uh, we were discussing the other day about stupid things we did as kids, um, and then we tr subsequently tried to understand what was actually happening when we did them. Uh, what he says is, uh, if you hold your lips closed with your fingers and breathe out into your mouth as hard as you can, really, really, really hard, hang on, hang on, I haven't finished yet, and, and, and then remove your fingers, you will blow out a puff of smoke. So you're going to try it, Dave? I'll See try it. Dave, you're turning a funny colour. I think you should stop. <laughs> it did sort of work. Uh, everyone at home, try this, OK? But you will need a room which is quite cool. Um, if you squeeze your lips together with your fingers, blow into your mouth really, really hard, as Jeff suggests, and then suddenly let the whole go, you will see a little puff of what looks like steam, almost like breathing out condensation on a cold day. Dave, what do you think is going on? Well, um, when you compress a gas, like when you squash a bicycle pump, if you've ever noticed that bicycle pumps get hot when you pump them, it's because when you compress gases, they get hotter. And conversely, if you expand the gas, then it will get colder. So I think what's probably happening is when you squeeze all the air into your mouth, when you blow really hard, it's compressing it, it's heating it up a bit, then cools down a bit and absorbs lots of um, water from your mouth. When you let it out, it gets colder. And when it gets colder, it can't hold as much water in it. It's exactly the same principle as how a fridge works, isn't it? And also exactly the same as the way clouds form. Air goes up, it expands, it gets colder, and, you, and the water comes out of it as the cloud. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks... The Naked Scientists. 
Nelson's in Norfolk. Hello, Nelson. Hello. What would you like to talk about? And welcome oh, to the I'm show, by the way. Speaking to the naked scientist now. You certainly are. Good evening. Good evening. Thank yes, you for joining my us. My question is, and has been for a long time. Uh, very interesting. This is a boy. I'm 90 now, so we've got to <laughs> give allowances. Uh, man has broken all records. Do you think he'll ever beat the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second, as you well know? Well, as far as we know. We probably can't. Um, everything we know means that the, the closer you get to the speed of light, the more energy you need to go a little bit faster until you need like an infinite amount of energy to go at the speed of light. Um, but that isn't to say that something might change as we learn more and more and more. It would mean re-understanding the way physics works for just, it to happen. Just your uh, considered opinion. Um, I think it would be unlikely at the moment. Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) Nelson clearly knows the physics, Dave. Let's give him some equations to help him along. Um, Why is it that we just can't keep accelerating and get to the speed of light? Um, uh, The energy required for some... The amount of kinetic energy something has normally um, equals equals mv squared. But as you get faster and faster and faster, there's another component going in there, which um, is inversely proportional to the... the speed minus the speed of light. So as, it, as you get close to the speed of light, it goes to infinity. So in other words, as you get bigger, as you get faster, you notionally get bigger. So oh, you need yeah. more energy to speed you up. Yeah. And as you get faster and faster and faster, that tends towards infinity. Yeah. You have to supply infinite amounts of energy. Is there any way to bypass that, Dave? As far as we know, no, unless the world doesn't work quite the way we think. Would we need to do some funny jiggery-pokery with relativity and pre-Weinstein role? Basically, yeah. I OK. Hope. Nelson, quick go at the quiz. Yeah, uh, well, can I just put one more quick one? Oh, sorry, yes. Why do we speak different languages? Uh, the reason we speak different languages is because uh, in the old days we didn't have EasyJet and Ryanair and British Airways to help us get around, and populations were isolated. Yes. And the isolation of populations meant that they evolved their own very unique and effective and efficient ways of communicating using language, and so they developed individual words for individual things. And as populations grew, obviously those efficient means of communicating spread amongst those groups of populations, but we remained isolated by geographical boundaries. And, of course, at the moment we have a channel separating us from France, and that's sort of one example of a geographical barrier. Um, In in other countries, it was more there might be a mountain range, it might just be a cultural barrier that meant that some people didn't want to talk to each other. geographical position. Sorry? Just a geographical position, then. Geography and culture, don't forget, because some people don't like each other because they worship the wrong god, for example, so they won't talk to each other. You know, they don't (laughs) like us. Fine one. Do you want a quick go of the quiz, Nelson? I'm not very good at this, but go on. The pressure cooker was invented over 300 years ago. Fact or fiction? I'm going to say fact. Yep, you're right. It was invented by Denis Papin in 1674 and originally called a digester. Cause it, yes, I it, thought so. He said well, it turned a, His original experiment showed he could turn a felt hat to jelly in just four and a half hours using his equipment. The average person in a Western country walks about 20,000 miles in their lifetime. Do you think that's fact or fiction, Nelson? 20,000 halfway around the world, or nearly around the world. Oh, I'm going to say that's fact. <laughs> No, a uh, recent survey suggests the average person walks around 50,000 miles, but yeah, probably in a few years it'll be much less than that. Yes, of course. You needed to get three out of three, Nelson. So, uh, you, well done. You, you, you sort of won short, I'm afraid, but thanks for a great question well, and thanks for joining us on the show. Guys, because uh, I wouldn't be able to set it anyway. <laughs> thanks for listening to me. Thank you for joining us on the programme, Nelson. Thanks, thanks Nelson. Naked. Why are you called naked? Well, put your clothes on. <laughs> It's the science that's naked, Nelson. (laughs) Stripping down science.
Right, let's have a quick chat to Neil, who's in Felixstowe. Good evening, Neil. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to talk about? Um, yes, it's the thing I've wondered for many years, why some people like me um, suffer so badly with static electricity. I'm sure I could light up the national grid sometimes. Mm, right. The door, car, yeah, car door. Right, so you mean when you get out of the car, yeah, you get a shock? Yeah, particularly then. And sometimes at night, you can actually see the, the crackles and the flashes. Absolutely. I was on British Airways. I came back from um, America this morning, actually, and I had a, a blanket on British Airways. And honestly, I could have illuminated the national grid. Every time I rolled over, there was sort of lightning storm going on in my seat. Okay. I thought they were going to arrest me. Speaking <laughs> of the power crisis, you know. Uh, absolutely. Um, no, the, the reason you get a shock off of the car is, as you know, there's the whole planet is engulfed in a dense blanket of air molecules. Right. And as your car drives along, it's got to push the air molecules out of the way. And the reason a car makes a noise as it goes along is because it's making turbulence. It's, it's pushing air molecules around and making them all bash against your car, against each other, and then, then that sort of ripples away. And so what this means is that charge, static charge, accumulates on the car because it's isolated from the road. It's isolated from Earth because most cars, as you know, have rubber tyres, and that yeah. rubber is not a good insulator, it's not a good conductor. Cool. So your car acquires a charge, and it's a little bit similar to in a big storm cloud when you want to have some lightning, for example. Uh, you've got lots of tiny water molecules um, and water ice crystals called hydrometeors, and the, the wind currents inside the clouds bash these things around and as they slowly rub against each other they transfer charge and you end up with a cloud which ends up with a big charge at the top of the cloud and, a, and the opposite charge at the bottom of the cloud and that's where you get a lightning bolt so you're sort of doing a similar experiment with your car at road level and when you step out of the car the car body now carries a charge you're in contact with the ground and you're also isolated from the outside of the car potentially if you're sitting in a seat wearing rubber shoes and everything and so when you touch the car to to close the door then the charge difference between you the ground and the car neutralizes itself using you as the way as the vehicle to do that right but do some people tend to suffer it more than others because you know mm. it depends on your clothing yeah it if you wear rubber-soled shoes, it'll be worse because your your body can't earth itself to the ground as well, so maybe you can hold the charge better. And maybe if you wore a lot of nylon clothing, as it rub it across you, you, you charge up really well. What are you saying, basically. What are you saying about Neil's fashion sense, Dave? <laughs> I suppose... <laughs> <laughs> Look, Neil, do you want a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, let's give it a go. Well, this is highly relevant, actually. The temperature of a lightning bolt's about 5,000 degrees Celsius. Is that fact or fiction? Um, I'd say fact. I'm afraid not. A lightning bolt is actually five times hotter than the surface of the sun and about 30,000 degrees Celsius. Ooh. That's a hot one. Thanks for having, uh, having a go, and thanks for joining us on the show, Neil. You're welcome. Now, uh, we're asking you to do a bit of home experimentation this evening. Derek, Sheena... Yi Chen and Zoe are at Colchester County High School. Let's find out how they're getting on with tonight's experiment. Derek, what are you up to? Hello there, and yes, we are still in Colchester County High School, just waiting for the outcome of this experiment. But in case you're wanting to have a go and uh, need some reminding over what you need to do, then here's a quick roundup of what you've got to get. Uh, you need a tray or a basin or your kitchen sink is fine, and put, let's say, an inch deep amount of water in there. Uh, you need a matchstick and you need to cut it at one end. You need to kind of slit it at one end and then splay the ends out so it makes a kind of a Y shape, like a letter Y. And then you've got to float that on the surface of the water and then get some washing up liquid 
and just drop it at the rear end, at the Y end of that matchstick and see what happens. And, of course, you have to tell us. And if you get the right result, uh, then you can win a prize. So please do contact us, the Naked Scientists. You can call 08459 25 2000. And, of course, you can also email at chris at thenakedscientist.com. So please do that. And we'll be back here with the result from Colchester County High School very shortly. So we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Derek. We've so far heard from Kim in Northampton and Simon in Braintree with the experiment, and they're on the right lines for definite. So are you going to be able to beat them? Get experimenting and then get calling. You could win yourself two great prizes this evening. We've got Sex, Drugs and DNA, which is written by Mike Stebbins. That's a wonderful book, and you will really enjoy reading that. And Pleasurable Kingdom, uh, that's by Jonathan Balkum. And now he's going to be joining us in Cambridge this Wednesday, that's the 31st of May, at 8 o'clock in Borders Bookstore. And the other person who will be there is Professor Felicia Huppert from Cambridge University. Hello, Felicia. Hello, Chris. Thank you for coming in. What are you going to talk about uh, when, when you go to Borders on Wednesday? The science of well-being. I mean, there's an enormous amount of interest at the moment in things like happiness. Um, and we're going to broaden this out and talk about the fundamental science that underlies all of this great interest. Why people are or want to be happy as opposed to sad. Exactly. That's that's an important part of it. Up till now, psychology and medical science has always been focusing on the problems that people have and disorder and dysfunction. But it's time to start asking questions about actually what makes people function well, what makes them feel good. And there's a whole load of different things that make people feel good uh, that we need to try and understand. But what, what, not... are, what are nature's feel-good factors, then, Felicia? <laughs> um, okay. And, and uh, what makes us feel good? It's... Feeling good is very important, Chris. I'm going to come back to that in a sec. But it, it, partly feeling good is important because it makes us function well. And this is why we talk about science of well-being as opposed to just the science of happiness. So, so what makes people feel good? It, it turns out, maybe not surprisingly, friends and family is incredibly important. Knowing your strengths and utilizing them, being really engaged in the things you do, and actually doing things for other people, these, these all seem very key. So it's almost like the Good Samaritan is something we were, we were programmed to do. Why, why should we be Good Samaritans? Um, why is it good for us to have friends, sing in a choir, go to church, play a musical instrument, say our prayers? Because all those things have been proven to make people live longer. Why should that be the fact? Why, why not the opposite? Why, why should we be better off if we're happy? We evolved as social animals, and so presumably as part of our evolution, those of us who, who did have you know, good friendships, who did work for other people, did do things uh, you know, together jointly, um, were the ones who were more likely to survive in hard times, and, uh, and that stayed with us. You know, what's happened but animals are the same, aren't they? Absolutely right, yes. A lot, there are a lot of social animals. There's other animals who are less so. Um, but certainly the social is an important part of Even it. Even insects. I mean, ants... Wasps, bees, they don't actually, as far as we know, have sensations of pleasure, potentially, but they must get some kind of reward from helping each other. Yep. So recently, David Cameron, the leader of the Conservative Party, made a speech where he was saying, we need to be happy, we need to think about general well-being rather than money in the pocket. If you were running this country... How would you go about trying to increase general well-being? Lots of money for science and science programmes. <laughs> and science communication, science yes. Science radio <laughs> programmes, especially at the top of the list. Apart from that, Felicia, what, if you were in charge, how would, you, how would you increase happiness in the country? I think you can do it at various different stages uh, of, of the life course. I think we need to start very early because the evidence from the um, animal research is that how you nurture very small 
animals, rodents usually, um, makes an enormous difference to their mental health and their capability throughout the rest of their life. So um, those very early, we need to focus on those very early years and make sure that parents know not only how to have you know a child born um, you know healthily at around the time of birth, but how to bring that child up in a way that maximizes their physical and mental health as well. So, so there's all of that. Then I suppose in the school years, actually, um, encouraging kids to learn social intelligence, social and emotional intelligence is, is really very important. Uh, it increases their well-being. It increases their chance of getting uh, you know, more friends. And, and the, there's a lot of evidence, too, that if you are feeling good, if you are feeling positive, you perform much better in every aspect of your life. Um, you concentrate better. You generate more ideas. You're also much more um, uh, resilient in a stressful situation. You bounce back faster. So these are all very good reasons. And then at the other end of the spectrum, because I'm quite interested in older people as well, one reason why older people today may not function as well as possible is because of our negative stereotypes of aging. So if in our society um, we could make um, people more positive about aging, then, and this is experimental evidence that shows this, if older people feel positive about themselves as, as against negative, they are more confident, their memory and learning is better, their numerical ability is better, their stress reactivity is better. So feeling confident, you get into this upward spiral where everything is better, where maybe you have the confidence to, uh, to go on the internet as opposed to feeling afraid of it. Um, so at every stage in the life course, I think there's things that we could be doing in our society uh, to improve well-being generally. It's the Naked Scientist, Chris, Dave and Kat, and it's our live science phone-in. And you have, if you have any science questions for us, phone me now, 08459 email chris at nakedscientist.com, or text us on 07786 201960. And I can say we've just heard uh, from Fred, who's on the M25, and Leon, who is in Lowestoft, and they've had a go at kitchen science. And I, I don't know how Fred managed it on the M25. Perhaps he's in a caravan or something, and he's got in the back and done the experiment. But uh, they're both on the right lines too. I have heard from Morris, who sent us a text message the other day, and I kept it because I thought it was so interesting. He says, when I take a painkiller, how does it know where the pain is? What a great question. Well, the answer is, Morris, uh, it's very simple, actually. When you take a, a pill like an aspirin or a paracetamol, what it does is to, is to target the inflammatory cascade. Now, what that means is that if you have an injury to a part of the body, you start to make substances in the damaged part of the body that signal to nerve cells that that part of the body is hurt, that it's uh, tender and that you need to m not to uh, move it around too much, not to stimulate it or damage it too much. So you guard it and keep it, keep it soft. Now, uh, the way in which these painkillers therefore home in on the damaged area is that they just block that cascade of inflammation everywhere in the body at the same time. So anywhere that is hurting just doesn't hurt as much. So it's not that the, the painkiller homes in just on your headache. It has its effects everywhere in the body, but you only notice the effect where there was the pain before because it stops it being so bad in that particular area. We've had an email in here from Dan Kushter, who's in Rochester, New York, in the USA. And he says he has a science question that he thought would be right up our alley as it involves farts, or flatulence, as we should probably say. Um, he learnt in school many years ago that food takes 12 to 24 hours to travel through the body. And he says, as I've gotten older 
outgassing has become a more noteworthy part of my life, but it doesn't seem to adhere to this time schedule. When he eats flatulent foods, such as beans or things like that, he, he becomes very gassy in as little as one to two hours. Why is this? Uh, where in our, our guts do these vapours form? And um, how do they get out so quickly? Well, the average human actually produces between half and one and a half litres of flatulence, flatulent gas every day. Partly this is things like oxygen and nitrogen that we've eaten. Women more than men. Yes, 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 Chris. You believe that, if you like. Um, This is partly nitrogen and oxygen that we've actually swallowed when we eat, but partly it's things like uh, gases that are produced by microbes that live in our guts. Now, um, so we know that bacteria make these gases. And food passes from your mouth into your stomach and then into your small intestine within about one to two hours of eating it and then it takes much longer it takes about five or six hours to get through your small intestine and then 12 to 24 hours to get through your large intestine your colon and most of the bacteria that make these smelly gases hang out in your colon your large intestine but some people very gassy people which probably may be Dan not wishing to cast any aspersions they have a lot more of these bacteria in their their small intestine the first bit of your intestinal tract. And, um, and so this is probably what Dan's finding, is that the bacteria are getting to work on the, the flatulent foods, the, the sugars and things in the beans that they like to eat, uh, much quicker. So he's finding that he's getting this gas. Uh, it's travelling because gas can travel quite quickly through your intestines. So he's probably finding that in a couple of hours rather than for other people who find it a, a little later on. Though I wouldn't know anything about this. Absolutely not. And sticking to the subject of gas, I've got a a question here from Drew Vance, who is living in Seattle and listening to us there. Um, And he says, when people measure carbon dioxide levels, a lot of the time the measure is as a weight. They'll say, your car released 10 pounds of carbon dioxide or whatever, but how do you weigh a gas? And what does that even mean? Well, the simple answer is that everything here on Earth is made of atoms and molecules, and they all must weigh something. And since we know how much each of these individual atoms or molecules weighs... It's very simple to say, well, we know how much gas came out of the car. We know what the composition of that gas was. We know that, say, uh, there was X amount of carbon dioxide in it, and therefore we know exactly on the basis of that how much carbon dioxide weight must have come out of the car. That's a simple argument. Now, uh, to put a little bit more complexity into the argument, uh, and so if you uh, are happy with the simple argument, you can stop listening here. Um, The complicated argument is that chemists have a very clever measurement called a mole, M-O-L-E, same as the thing that makes a nuisance of itself in your garden. But this is a convenient measure by which you you can compare directly how much of something you've got, because one mole of any chemical substance, an atom or or, or a molecule, contains six followed by 23 zeros atoms. And so if you have one mole of carbon dioxide, you know that you've got six followed by 23 zeros molecules of carbon dioxide. And we know how much one molecule of carbon dioxide weighs, and we therefore know how much one mole of of carbon dioxide weighs. In fact, I can tell you that one mole of carbon dioxide weighs 44 grams. Now, the average person is quoted as producing, not personally from their own body, but through their lifestyle, heating their house, um, flying across the Atlantic, if they're me, uh, also driving around in your car, the average person produces about four and a half tonnes of carbon dioxide every single year. So the way you do this calculation is you could say, well, four and a half tonnes is 4,400 kilograms of carbon dioxide or 4.4 million grams of carbon dioxide. 
Now, I told you that one mole of carbon dioxide weighs 44 grams, so if you divide 4.4 million grams by 44, that means you must have 10 to the 5 moles of carbon dioxide that you've made through your lifestyle each year. And we know that one mole of gas takes up 24 litres at room temperature and pressure. So if you times 24 by that, that means that the average person produces, through their lifestyle, 2.5 million litres of carbon dioxide, just pure carbon dioxide gas in isolation, every single year. Now, that's about half the size of a large swimming pool, so a considerable amount of gas. Right, let's give a quick chat to Brian, who's in Norwich. Hello, Brian. Yes, hi, uh, hi, scientist. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on the programme. What, what can we do for you? Right, my question is this, that um, in nature... Uh, apart from like a sort of strata in rocks and that there's a relatively straight line but other than that there is no such thing as a straight line when I say straight I mean perfectly straight like a man-made straight line no mm. nature produces nothing of that nature so I can see well it produces crystals of course doesn't it guys and beams of light then they travel in straight lines till they hit something or they're bent by gravity yeah. yeah I mean crystals are probably the obvious example of something a solid which is made with straight lines because if you look at a salt crystal or something it will have flat faces and um and the corners will be sharp the corners will be a straight line. This is because of the way all the little atoms stack. They stack in a big pile, and it's much easier to grow that way. So if we imagine something like salt, uh, you can imagine the salt atoms as, as little balls connected by straight lines between them. So they would be straight lines across. Mm. Does that answer the question, Brian? Yeah, and uh, would you like to have a go at the quiz? Yeah, fine, thank you. People were using aspirin-like substances over 4,000 years ago for relief of joint and back pains. Do you think that's fact or fiction? You're absolutely right. The Ebers papyrus, named after the German Egyptologist who bought it in uh, Egypt, presumably, recommends an infusion of myrtle leaves, which contain salicylic acid, a close relative of aspirin. Well, one out of one so far. The majority of people tilt their heads when they kiss someone. Do you think that's fact or fiction? They tilt their heads to the left, sorry, when they kiss someone. Oh, to the left. Um, well, I don't know about left, but, uh, yeah, I think, they, you, you know, the physical geometry of the face, you need to do so uh, to a certain extent one way or another. Left or right, though? Ah, uh, Left. They tilt, their, they tilt themselves to the left? Sorry. <laughs> Apparently not. On average, people tilt their head to the right. They're twice as likely to tilt it to the right than the left. But it was a, an excellent question anyway, and thank you for joining us on the programme, okay, Brian. Then. Take care. Laying the facts bare, Ooh. the naked scientists. We're into about the last 10 minutes. If you have a science question for us, 08459 252000, or you can email chris at Just an update on our kitchen science experiment. Holly, who's in a campsite in Blakeney in Norfolk, has got the uh, kitchen science experiment right so far. So it's up to the final stretch now. Can you get there first before anybody else? Let's have a quick chat to Ian, who is in Northampton. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, Good to hear you on the programme. What's your question? Um, well, we kept freezing cows for about 50 years. Yep. And occasionally you got an odd one, got sunburnt. Right. On, on, on all of it or just on the white patches? On the, on the white patches. And you want to know why? Yeah. Okay, we're going to rush because we're a bit short of time. Dave, tell him why. Um, basically, a white hair is actually transparent. Sorry, a white Dave. hair is basically transparent, um, whereas a black hair is dark. So the light will go straight through the white hair, get bounced around a bit, but go straight through to the skin, but the black hair will get absorbed by the hair. <laughs> ah, there you go. There was a rational explanation for it, Ian. Yes. All right, thank you for joining us on the programme. Yeah, bye. Great to have you here. It's The Naked Scientists, and it's time now to find out what we're doing with this kitchen science. Let's have a quick chat to Leon. Hello, Leon. Hello there. You had a go at our experiment. I did. Very briefly, in about ten seconds, can you tell us what it was you discovered? I discovered that the match went shooting across to the other side of the bowl. In what direction, relative to where you dropped in the detergent? 
uh, directly away from it. Excellent. OK, let's find out, because we're going to head back now to Colchester County High School. Stay on the line, please, and we'll okay. see if you're right. Let's rejoin Derek, Sheena, Yichen and Zoe. Hi, Derek. What's going on there? Hi there, and welcome back to Colchester County High School, where, indeed, we do have this experiment ready to go, ready to explain to you what is going to happen. So here we go, then. Sheena has helped us set up this basin with uh, a layer of water in it, about a centimetre or two deep of water, and we've got a matchstick which has been cut at the end so that there's kind of a Y shape at the back of the matchstick, and um, it's floating in the water, and we're ready just to drop some washing-up liquid. So would you care to instruct Zoe and Yichen as to what to do? OK, then, so if you take up, just take your washing-up liquid and just drop, a tiny drop, just sort of where the Y opens up, um, just a little drop in the water. Oh, wow. It, like, flew all the way to the end of the tray. OK, yeah, Zoe, what, what happened, do you think? Um, I don't know, but obviously the matchstick moved away from the washing-up liquid in the other direction. Yeah, that, that was rather interesting, wasn't it? It kind of propelled it away down the tray. I mean, would you say it was quite powerful? Yeah, uh, it really surprised me. OK, well, there we go. Um, Sheena, of course, is grinning gleefully here because she obviously knew exactly what was going to happen. But, uh, yeah, so Sheena, ex I mean, what, can you explain that for us then? What happened there? This all comes down to surface tension. So I'm just going to explain a little bit about surface tension and, and what that is. If you imagine your molecule right in the centre of, of a tank of water... Water molecules have an attractive force between them, so you would be being pulled in every direction by all the water molecules around you. Now if you imagine you're at the surface of a tank of water, so you're there at the top, you'll find that you're being pulled in every direction from the side and from below, but you're not being pulled from the top at all because you've just got air above you there. So what would be the effect on you? You'd find that maybe you're sort of being squished down a bit. All the molecules on the, on the top are being squished down, and you end up with sort of a, a more dense film of molecules on the top of the water. And that's basically what surface tension is. That's why you can sort of get... You might have seen an experiment where you can get sort of a needle to float on the water, and it's because the water at the top is a bit more dense. So now, what's happening with the, with the washing-up liquid when we add that? Now, the washing-up liquid is something which you call a surfactant, and a surfactant is something which breaks this tension. It basically reduces this sort of pulling force of, of the water molecules. So by adding the, the washing-up liquid, one side of the matchstick, you've sort of broken that one side of the matchstick, but the other side of the, of the matchstick, they're all sort of attracting each other and pulling each other still. So what the matchstick feels is it feels like a pulling force from all the molecules on one side where they're still trying to get closer to each other, but on the other side, they're no longer feeling that force. So while they're being propelled by the washing-up liquid, it's actually all sort of being pulled from the other side. OK, so this property of washing up liquid, that it's a surfactant, I mean, is that also related to its ability to clean things? Yeah, because it also works between water and oil as well as sort of water and, and air on the surface. So it's exactly the same thing where it's sort of breaking up this sort of pulling force between materials which are, which are the same. So molecules on the surface are pulling in all directions when you lay that matchstick on the surface. But as soon as you put a little bit of um, washing up liquid on one side, suddenly there's no pulling there. And so the pulling happens from all the other directions, and that makes it go in a straight line. Do I have it correct in my head? Yep, that's exactly it. One thing is, is you may have found that if you did do this experiment and you put in some wash washing up liquid, if you try to repeat it, then you, you wouldn't be able to do it without fresh water. And that's because just a tiny amount of the washing up liquid can sort of pollute your, your system because you no longer have that surface tension anymore. Ah, that's a very good hint. And also, finally, why is it that we made that Y shape at the end of the matchstick? 
that just sort of increases the area that you're acting on because you, you've got a sort of a, a long bit of matchstick that the pulling force can act on. OK, and if people tried it without doing that, what would happen? You might find that if, you're, if your matchstick's at a slight angle, it might sort of spin a bit, so you might, it might not shoot forward quite so impressively. Indeed, but still a cool effect, so we do indeed encourage you to do it at home if you haven't already. But anyway, Zoe and Yu Chen did do it for us, so thanks to you very much. Uh, Zoe, what did you think of our experiment? I thought it was really good, yeah. OK, and Yu Chen, had you kind of heard of surface tension before? Um, vaguely at school. OK, but does this kind of make it a bit more well explained in your head? Yeah, it does. OK, that's excellent. Well, thank you very much, guys, for, for coming along and doing this experiment for us. And uh, thanks to Colchester County High School for having us and to you, Sheena, for doing the experiment. So um, we'll be back next week, of course, with more science that hopefully you can do at home. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from us. Thank you very much, Derek, Sheena, Yuchen and Zoe, who are at Colchester County High School doing that experiment. And Leon, yeah. did uh, you agree with their explanation? Is that what yeah. you thought was going on? Yeah, well, I did a couple of things, actually. I also tried it again after the first instance. And yeah. It didn't move, as, as I've just heard explained. Yeah. But I would, I'd like to say, take this experiment a little bit further. I would like to get myself a rowing boat with a V-shape, yep. stern, and a bucket full of fairy liquid and see how quickly I would... Uh, and you'll also get yourself a fine from the local water board for polluting their waterway and causing eutrophication, probably. I'll, I'll do it in a private <laughs> swimming pool. I should do, yes, and then, then you'll get killed by the owner of the private swimming pool and it's your own, of course. I can't win, can I? Thank you very much for joining us, Leon. OK, thanks a lot. Well, we're almost out of time. Kat, squeeze your email in very, very fast. Yeah, well, I was hoping that Stefan Kuiper in New Zealand was listening to our kitchen science. He wanted to know why, if you have oil on the surface of a dirty pot and you add washing up liquid, all the oil shoots to the side. It's exactly that. It's the uh, washing up liquid disrupting the surface tension makes the oil shoot across your pot. So there you go, Stefan. We did it for you. Next week, uh, Derek's going to be out there uh, looking actually at super cooling vegetables. He's going to be at Hills Road Sixth Form College in Cambridge and we're going to be dipping things in liquid nitrogen to make them very, very cold. What happens to them when you do that? That's Kitchen Science next week. And on the show next week, we'll be finding out about alternative energy, including potentially um, things like nuclear fusion and also how we're going to replace oil. We'll have Nikki White from Cambridge University and Professor Lynn McCaskey, how they and uh, that's how waste sugar from the confectionery industry can be used to power fuel cells. You've been listening to The Naked Science Thank you to Dave and Kat. Join us next week at 6. In the meantime, have a wonderful Sunday evening. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.